You are listening to the Gay Florida Man podcast. This podcast is hosted by retired corrections officer, Mark DeWolf, who will discuss various topics prevalent to corrections, gay culture, arts and entertainment, as well as current events. Listeners need to be advised that this podcast will discuss situations involving extreme violence, substance abuse, sexual assault, and murder. Details of actual events have been modified so as to protect the privacy of involved parties. Welcome back to the Gay Florida Man. This is episode 24. Now, the Gay Florida Man podcast has a YouTube page, a Facebook page, a Twitter page, and an Instagram page with lots of additional information of the different subjects that we talk about on the podcast. I have been kicking my own ass trying to get a lot of information or a lot of visuals on the YouTube page for the Gay Florida Man podcast. And I see a lot of people are watching the recruitment video, which we talked about in episode 14. I highly recommend that you watch that. And if you're a Star Trek fan, you'll definitely like that throwback video from 1990, where my friends and I did our own version of Star Trek called Star Trip and built the bridge of the Enterprise in my friend's house right down the street. It's a little dated, but it's a lot of fun. I think you should check it out. Now, up until this point, we've talked about a lot of different things involving prison life. We've talked about bad cops. We've talked about receiving an orientation. We've talked about being gay and working in prison. We've talked about mentally ill with lots of fun stories. We've talked about crazy staff stories. I know that's a big favorite of everybody that's listening. We also talked about working in hell and making it fun and the real downer working under different administrations, surviving different administrations. One of the things that we have not talked about up until this point is the perspective of somebody that's gone through the criminal justice system and comes into prison. I cannot even imagine the amount of stress, not only on the person coming to prison, but on their family. I've always wanted to sit down and go face-to-face with somebody. It would be great to find somebody that I'd actually managed, but I don't know. I clearly don't have connections with a lot of the people that I met behind bars. Today, I'm going to talk to somebody who has an amazing amount of courage to come forward and talk about a period in their life that most people do everything they can to forget. This person gave me insight as to what it's like to live inside this place to live inside the maximum security unit of the state prison, to actually be part of the security threat group housing. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with somebody who lived inside the Utah State Prison. So joining me now is Chris. Chris, how are you? I am doing fantastic, Mark. I appreciate you having me on. I really appreciate you coming on. It takes a lot of guts to come on and talk about a chapter that in most people's lives is something they want to forget, they want to move on, and they don't ever want to talk about it. I got to tell you, there was two other people that I reached out to through people that I know that had served time in the state prison. One person I think is maybe 
on the edge of going back at any time because I think still involved with some activities. When he was asked through somebody else, would you like to be on a podcast? He was like, not only no, but fuck no. <laughs> and then there was another individual that uh, was asked through a friend of somebody that I had seen when I was in Utah just a few weeks ago. He had responded to his brother and I'd asked this person, would your brother who had been in prison for eight years in Utah, would he like to come on the podcast? And he got a very long-winded response, even though he said he didn't want to talk about it. He did want to at least tell me to fuck off in a very negative, angry way. And I had read the response from his brother. I wanted to ask, did he not take anger management while he was there? Because his message was very clear. He definitely sounds like somebody that uh, is very angry about his experience. But I really appreciate you coming on, Chris, and talking about your story. Well, again, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share. And uh, like you said, I hopefully it, it's helpful in some way to, to someone out there that's either staring down the barrel of a prison sentence or family member that's got a, a son or a daughter that's going in and, and they don't really know what to do either. And, and just hopefully something I say is helpful in some way. I imagine it's overwhelming. Your story, you were born in Utah. You grew up in Utah. I did. I grew up south end of the valley in uh, Salt Lake City Valley. Now, were you a Mormon? Were you raised LDS? I was. My parents were extremely, extremely involved in the church uh, at face value. Okay. (laughs) Fair Um, enough. Fair enough. I I know a few friends that can say that same thing. (laughs) Saints in the face of other saints is what I would like to say. (laughs) Interesting. I have not heard that term. Were you an only child, Chris, or did you have siblings? No, I'm actually the youngest of seven kids. Whoa. Yeah. Your parents stayed busy. I'm the youngest of five. My older siblings always told me that I was that that one glass of wine too many. So, <laughs> I, but I know that's probably not the case with the LDS faith, that wine is not on the menu. Well, it's not on the menu, but not unlike yours. I mean, there was a big gap. So there was five. And then I always like to say that my sister that's just, you know, a couple years older than me was a total mistake. And then I was had in order to remedy that so that she'd have somebody else to play with. So I was intentional. She was not. This is what I like to say. I don't know if wow. it's true, but that's the story I like to tell. <laughs> <laughs> that's your story and you're sticking to it. That's right. What was life like? I mean, you and six siblings. What was life like growing up? Honestly, I didn't know what it was like to have six siblings. I, I knew it was like to have one. My oldest, you know, the oldest group of siblings had left the home really early on. I think from the time they figured out how to pack a suitcase, they were out of there. I mean, growing up as, as a young kid... Like when I was really, really young, I didn't really know what went on. But, you know, as I grew a little bit older, I learned very, very quickly that it was a household that was uh, full of, you know, physical abuse, emotional abuse. And uh, while personally, I wasn't didn't receive any sexual abuse. I know there are others that have. So I don't know what it's like to have the older siblings. And I didn't I didn't learn what it was like to have that kind of family until later. So I just had my my one sister that we were there together and kind of living through it at the time. Wow. How is she doing now? Uh, she's doing fantastic, actually. Good. Um, I, I can't say that for everyone of my siblings, but she's doing amazing. With all this this sort of dysfunction and stuff, did your older siblings, do you know, did they serve missions because your family's LDS? 
No. Uh, I think okay. that, that my family's, you know, extreme beliefs in, in the LDS church in front of other people and then, you know, to come home from their sacrament meetings and, you know, just beat the tar out of their kids. I think my brothers sure. and sisters are like, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Wow. Yeah. So would you say that this background with your family kind of um, puts you on a path to be involved with the criminal justice system? You know, a little bit, actually. My parents actually, I mean, I don't want to paint them as, I mean, don't get me wrong. They were not great parents, obviously. I just told you a little bit about the abuse. And they were great to other people. Um, as I said, it was the, their standing in the church and their standing in the community was what was important to them. And and so for a period, they had sponsored some families to come over um, as refugees from Cambodia and Laos. I kind of grew up with these families very, very close to to ours. In fact, they moved in, you know, a few doors down from our home, and these were my childhood friends. But like a lot of people in in that situation, their children all really got involved in gangs. I kind of started down that path as well because, I mean, let's face it, I wasn't trying to be at home very much. Uh, I was trying to be anywhere but there. And too often, you know, people who are in that kind of situation seek out camaraderie. You know, they're seeking out some sort of clan to call their own and Gangs will always accept you, you know, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. when you're not accepted at home. And I mean, that's really what people are looking for, I think, is some sort of acceptance deep down, whether they're willing to, you know, admit it or not. How old would you say you were when you started to get involved with this gang activity? Like, you don't want to be at home because, of course, the abuse and, you know, the dysfunction. What age are we talking here? So at the age of 12, uh, to put wow. it in perspective... I mean, somebody's using me as a runner to run to open a backpack, which seems like not something you would expect to see in a, you know, in a suburb of Salt Lake. No, no, no. What, uh, can you give me a general idea of like what year we're talking here? So this is probably 91, 92. That's crazy. You know, a 12 year old running drugs in his backpack. That's nuts the things that I pick up would be like New York or Los Angeles or some of the seedy areas of other major cities, Chicago, et cetera. But Salt Lake city, I moved there in 96 and God, I was like, this is going back in time. This place is wonderful. Everybody's so nice. So for you to say that this is happening in 91, God, I'm naive. That's not necessarily a mistake. So my sister, when she left my oldest sister, um, she left and she went to the Midwest, so she actually spent most of her time in Chicago. By the time I was 10, 11, 12, not only was I involved in the gangs, but she had come back and was a part of my life at that time. You know, she was pretty heavily into drugs as well. And she's she was really the truthfully the one that was having me mule the drugs more than the gang stuff. But my gang gave me customer base. Wow. So at that point, you're just running drugs. But they're obviously you start to move up in the program or move up in the gang or you start to want a bigger cut or something. I don't know how that works exactly. You'll have to tell me. Well, how it works for me is I decided I wanted to be heavy user. You know, things fell apart. You've probably experienced, you've you've seen people come into the system and I mean, you've seen probably the evolution of R&L to, you know, three or four months later and the amount of health that somebody can gain in a short period after being on a, on a long run of drugs. I mean, I wasn't competent to do anything other than, you know, small time crime anymore, you know what I mean? Because I was too hooked on the drugs. What drug are we talking? What was the drug of choice? 
Oh, for me, it started out with crank and then moved on to, you know, meth, of course, and in meth's heyday here in the Salt Lake Valley. But it all started out with just, uh, you know, dirty crank. Sure. It doesn't take long to get hooked on that stuff, huh? No, not at all. Right. And I can't imagine. And so when you started using 12, 13, 14, what? Probably 13, 14 is when I really started, started using pretty heavily at that point. That's when I was pretty useless as like a, a competent drug runner or anything that involved handling money from somebody because I wasn't trustworthy. Where does it go from there then at once you start using and then of course you got to get high all the time. You're chasing yeah. that initial high. You are. So my first uh my first real foray with law enforcement was I stole from my parents, honestly. And I, I think I mentioned to you prior that my first actual criminal charge was uh being turned in by my father. I did something wrong, but I feel like as a kid, there's maybe some easier lessons (laughs) than turning them over. And I mean, I don't have any, any way of knowing what his thought process was, if he was trying to save me from, you know, worse or what. I I like to think he had good intentions. I think that honestly, I mean, that put me in line with even nastier people and a greater library of people to deal with when I got out. That's what you'd said the other day when we had a conversation about what uh, or how this podcast was going to go, is you had said that once you got into the system, you got introduced to an element that you had never met before. And it's, <laughs> it's not very good for somebody that's trying to get back on track. Well, the reality of it is, is that I went in there uh, and I like to pretend at the time that I was a, a tough guy, skinny as I was and I mean, the truth is I was a scared kid. Of course. I, I looked you know, I looked towards anything and anyone, but I, you know, I had this mentality of what jail or, you know, prison was supposed to be like. I felt like maybe the first person that talked to me, I needed to prove myself to, you know, and that was just what I thought. Uh, it kind of took off from there. So when your father turned you over, were you part of then the, the juvenile system then at that point, or were you old Ju- enough to be in the adult system? Of 17, uh, okay. juvenile system. So at this time, and, uh, it was a very, very short stay, but it opened up my network really, really broadened my network. It was no longer the same group of, of gang members that I was hanging out with. And in fact, you know, that's where things really get interesting. Was that Decker Lake that you were at? Yeah. Okay. And so you're in there for a very short period of time. You get out and you're completely reformed and you live a great life. Is that how it? That would happen. <laughs> I would love to say that's where the tale went, but you know, as as a, as a guy who felt like his parents put him there, it, I felt like I didn't want to have anything to do with them. So, were you oh, pissed at them? I was furious. You know, sure, I hated sure. them. I didn't. I mean, didn't have anything for them in my mind. I had just totally written them off. Of course, you know, many times where I needed them between then and now, uh, you know, at the time I was just furious. I couldn't even imagine talking to them. Wow. And your sister. She she had started to work hard to try to get herself clean while I was in Decker Lake, and she she married a, a great guy who supported her in that, and she moved off to Texas. She stayed in contact with me, but she worked really, really hard on her sobriety over the next five to seven years. Pretty much awesome. cut me off other than letters and some contact just because letter communication, phone call communication, no, no in-person contact with anybody in her life that she was doing drugs with so she knew in order to stay clean that she had to keep her distance she did 
Yeah, uh, a lesson that I did not learn for a very long time. Right, right, right. You were still in the game. I was, I was, and I thought I was cool. You know, I uh, I thought I was hot shit as most young people do, and I jumped right back into it. I mean, I didn't have anywhere in my mind to go that was a, a safe place. Okay. My parents had just thrown me in jail, you know, at Decker Lake, of course. And so I immediately was couch surfing and uh, hanging out with a bunch of dope heads again. Were you still 17 when you got out of Decker Lake? No, I, I actually got out a couple months after I turned 18. So now you're going from friend to friend to friend living on their couch, like you said. Yep. But I mean, obviously, I wasn't reporting to any kind of probation officer. I mean, I was on the run day one, basically. I was just, because you're a kid, you don't. At that time, you don't have any sense. You just don't have any direction. I didn't really have parents I was staying with or anybody sensible to, to talk to. It was just back into the life. I'll tell you, it was probably maybe 60 days or, or more before I was back in again. But this time I was looking at a zero to five at the state prison. Ooh. When you got out of Decker Lake, how long before you were high again? 48 hours. Oh, okay. You're back in the system 60 days later, you said? I would say roughly 60, between 60 and 90 days. I, I mean, when you're on that much drugs, life's a little bit of a blur. I, I feel like a ton of things happened throughout that period. Yeah, but yeah. Probably because I didn't take any time to sleep during that period. Right, right. So you're out 60 days. You get picked up again. You're now facing charges that are going to put you in the big house. You're going to earn your, your hard number, right? I am, and, and earn it I did. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> well, actually, I feel like I got off easy. Uh, I started out in, in Arno doing classification. This is you one of five, and what year would this be? I'm going to say around 96, 97, if I was remembering right. You were brand new to the system when I was because I started in 97, and my academy class started like in June of 97, and then I graduated in September. So you yeah. and I were starting out at the same time. I was a fish cop. <laughs> uh, we were. Now, I will say that like, to my benefit, I actually got shipped off very, very quickly to a county jail as they were doing that. They were very, very overcrowded. And if you remember, uh, they were shipping everybody off to county jail programs around that time. And so for people that are listening, Utah, what they would do and when they would run out of bed space is they would contract with county jails and your low risk offenders would go and do their time for the state in a county jail. That's what you're referring to, Chris? Yep, absolutely. Okay. And I was relatively low risk. I mean, I was a nothing but petty crime at the time, you know, just plenty of it, enough to stack them and give me a zero to five. But it was relatively low, low risk, no violence, you know, no problems of record. Sure. So you're now, you're classified, you're shipped out to a, a county jail. What was your experience in Arno? Because, I mean, you're 18, and now you're in there, and of course, we all know, well, we don't all know, but a lot of us that have worked there or who have been in there know that when you come into the prison as a male inmate, you go into receiving orientation, which was UNA5, and then overflow was UNA3. I think yep. there was like one section of UNA3. In the classification process, the episode that I talked about, RNO, they classify you to determine where you are best suited to live. And if you're part of a gang, hardcore, then you're uh, part of the STG program, which is Security Threat Group, and you would go there. If you're a sex offender, you're probably going to be required by the Board of Pardons to do sex offender treatment, and you're going to be housed probably in Ochre 5 or SSD, Special Services Dorm. 
again, the whole list goes on depending on what you have to do while you're in prison, what your offense is, and how big of a threat you are. Is that safe to say, Chris, basically the way I just explained it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And up until then, I had no, well, I had, I got my first tattoo when I was 13. Um, Wow. Well, I had had some nicknames and just, I mean, at that point, you just got some bullshit tattoo that somebody put on in somebody's basement at that point but yeah an anchor uh, i love mom yeah that sort of thing. You know, i uh, <laughs> it, i laugh i actually the first one was a nickname the second one was like a dragon that was supposed to be coming out of my back and it's very terrible i tell my kids this is the, it's my seahorse tattoo <laughs> because it doesn't look <laughs> and, and i said this is why you don't have somebody do a tattoo on your back when you're you know 13 years old in somebody's basement <laughs> so, yeah yeah lesson learned <laughs> <laughs> I'd escaped being classified as a as an actual gang member at uh-huh. that point in time. So I was able to qualify for the county jail program. Probably a good thing because as a young white guy, I had only been involved hanging out with these Asian gangs for the most part. When you had said that it was an Asian gang, and I had very, very little interaction with Asian gangs because, correct me if I'm wrong, some gangs will boast and they love to talk to the cops. Some will talk down to you. Uh, some will be condescending. Some will just diarrhea of the mouth. They'll talk to you a lot and they'll talk about how bad their gang is, whatever. The Asian gangs, I don't know about so much the Polynesian, but the hardcore Asian gangs, they will not talk to the police. They do not talk to the police. The ones that I would interact with. It was yep. bare minimum. Absolutely. That's a very, very accurate assessment of it. I, I mean, some... <laughs> Uh, depending on if the person's an idiot or super high on drugs, I mean, you always got to mm-hmm. do, but I mean, mm-hmm. rule of thumb is you just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, and they do. They really do. Code of silence. All right. So you're at the county jail. Tell us more about that. So you said you weren't in for a very long time. So 18 months for on my zero to five. And okay. for a lot of your listeners, so Utah also does indeterminate sentencing, uh, which isn't something everywhere. So you get a, a kind of, it's not a set sentence. You get a zero to five, a one to 15, or a five to life. And then basically you're qualified for going in front of the parole board after a period of time and see if you're ready to go out or be reformed. It really works to their advantage because they did always seem to, especially in the 90s, early 2000s, they were limited on bed space. That uh, that open-ended sentencing, 0 to 5, 1 to 15, you do just a fraction of your sentence and then you get kicked back out to the streets and then APMP has to deal with you, right? Yep. So you get out of prison, you parole for the first time. Yep. And, and uh, as you were late... Probably 98, early 99. Okay. And uh, surprise, surprise, this is only another three-month stint. However, I went really off the deep end this time. When so, you say really off the deep end, are you talking about criminal activity or drug use or both? I'm talking both. And, uh, <laughs> and it was, again, I'd expanded my network. I, from prison? From prison. And <laughs> I got a little bit smarter about it. Yes, I was a user, but I was selling again. started cooking math. I'm kicking in people's doors, not because we needed the money, but it was because it was something to do. Any other gang members and stuff like that. And it was not great. You know, I actually got into it with some of my own people at the time. It was over drugs and uh, they actually, uh, I actually got set up to meet them and they, I got taken at gunpoint in Sandy and they drugged me out to the salt flats and uh, beat me to what they thought was to death. 
out really? there. So this is this is where where I mean I, I really got off the deep end is is again expanding the network. The truth is I was dealing with people I probably shouldn't have sure. my standing. They beat you unconscious, assume you were dead, and leave you in the salt flats. Yeah. Please tell me more about how somebody wakes up, realizes what's going on. Did you have a cell phone? I mean, this is a long time ago. How, how does nothing, Rob? I mean, pockets empty, wallet gone. I honestly don't remember how, like, how I really got to the hospital. I mean, I remember vaguely waking up and someone taking me, kind of crawling to the, to the side of the road out there, and a good Samaritan, if you will, uh, wow. taking me to the hospital. I was saved, you know, probably by a gracious soul that saw me there. Yeah, you are very lucky, Chris. I am. Some people would say, hey, I was very, very lucky and, and maybe learn a lesson. Not me. I'm more hard-headed than a bulldog. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I mean, they didn't know who I was in the hospital. I had no ID, nothing. And, I mean, to be honest with you, by the time I came to, I was trying to rip IVs out. because I'm like, I'm not fucking paying for this shit. I'm out of here, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I was like, wow. I'm not putting the bill. I know it's just expensive. I got to go. <laughs> right, right, right. I left. Um, I actually was able to use the hospital phone, call somebody. Uh, they met me out, hospital parking lot. Did you sneak out of the hospital? Clothes. I did. You really did. did. You weren't kidding. Yeah, like I, you, I'm you, not kidding. I yanked IVs. I, I got a hold of somebody as soon as I said they were there. I pulled everything and walked. They never identified you? No. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's well, one way to get out of paying that it, bill. <laughs> I, okay. I wish it was so easy these days. It's, right? I, I think you and I talked. You can't get away with anything anymore. There's a there's a ring doorbell camera on everybody's house, and there's just cameras on every corner. So I just sure? couldn't sure. do it anymore these days. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, you walk into a hospital, they don't care who you are. They just want to make sure you've got insurance. Yeah. But I mean, I kind of came in semi-unconscious, you know, in right, the emergency right, room. Right. And so their goal is to stabilize you there. My goal was to just get the fuck on because I was not trying to stick around. Yeah. Okay. You know, actually, it was, I, want, I was in a murderous rage too. I mean, I was poor, I was beaten, but I wanted to kill. I, I wanted revenge on every single one of those people. Less so because of the the beating that I took. I think, truthfully, I was emotionally hurt that, you know, even though I was probably in the wrong according to their rules, that, you know, people that were supposed to be my family would do that to me. Well, at this point, you know, you've already, to a certain extent, been betrayed by family based on your background of what's happened. And it's sad what has happened to your childhood with the violence in the house. And then you befriend these people from another country and they get pulled into the gang and you get their trust and now they turned on you. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrible. This friend picks you up at the hospital and where do we go from there? Uh, naturally, right? You'll have to, you'll I, have to uh, tell me what, what goes on, details as to how this revenge would take place. I actually, a good friend of mine, well, I, a good drug user buddy of mine at the time okay he's the one who picked me up he was somebody i had been hanging out with pretty tightly and one of the people that i was in trouble for dealing to outside of my family so to speak right and so he called him and he says well you know let's go get him and so we steal a car uh naturally because you, know, you gotta have a good getaway vehicle sure. throw a couple pieces in the car and 
I actually also had a pipe bomb with me. Okay. Uh, my plan, because, you know, most crackheads, and I say crackhead, it was the meth head, you know, I, most tweakers aren't known for their brilliance. I had this plan, obviously. I was, I knew these guys were all, at least most of the people that had beat me were all at one apartment. And my plan was to throw the pipe bomb through the window and just pick out anybody that comes running out. That Chris, was the plan. Chris, can I ask you a question? Okay, so you just got out of the hospital and I mm-hmm. don't think that true value has pipe bombs in aisle six. Where does one get a pipe bomb when you need one instantaneously because you're going to reenact this get revenge case? <laughs> Where does one get a pipe bomb? One of your connections was Mark Hoffman when you were inside the state prison. I don't understand where no. you get a pipe bomb. <laughs> Quickly. Actually, I, I went to, to buy some dirty guns from somebody. And, okay. you know, we picked up a couple pieces. But he also said, hey, I've got these and I've got, you know, I've got some other stuff. I don't know if it's useful. And uh, so I picked them up as well. I got you. Okay. Just had to ask that. It was a brilliant idea in my mind. Like it, I thought <laughs> I was going to be some sort of action star. You know how, you know how it goes. I could say the execution, I won't say that it was just poor. I, I mean, it was non-existent. I never quite made it there. And I, I'll say that, I don't know if you're a religious man, but some sort of power stepped in and saved me. Uh, maybe that power is just my own sheer stupidity. I don't know. But this was my saving grace. You know, we headed off, obviously, in a stolen car. We were headed to the apartment. And I'm actually driving through Sandy, Utah, um, near where the... There's a police station over by the Southtown Mall, if you're familiar with that area. Okay. I am headed to this apartment complex, and a police officer gets behind me. Uh, It's a marked car, and I'm in a stolen vehicle, so I start to get nervous, and I just, (laughs) I turn right without stopping. Bonehead move. He throws the cherries on me, and I was not about to pull over at that point. So this is where the chase begins. Now, the chase didn't last very long in the vehicle. I knew that we were in a lot of trouble. A friend and I are cruising in this little truck. It's like a Chevy S10, just tiny piece of shit, as we figured it would be unassuming. I pull into where I think would be the smartest place to lose somebody, the mall. I just okay. literally park it like outside the doors. Like I pull up on the curb. My buddy and I run out of the truck. <laughs> like... We run into the mall. Like, I've got this backpack with a, a gun on me. I've got a pipe bomb in it. Jeff's got a piece with him. And we take off. And I, we lose him, actually, in the mall. I actually was able to get clothes changed at a store. Able to head out. But, uh, you know, there's another uh, another do-gooder spotted me running at the very, very beginning and had immediately got on their cell phone with 911 letting him know that they knew exactly where the man was that they were looking for my friend that had come with me made it all the way out to auto mall drive before he got picked up but he was able to ditch his piece at the time i was not so lucky i was busted inside the mall still trying to make my escape to which they found the gun they found explosives and that was to say the least the biggest sentence that i was facing in front of me that was probably like the biggest hurdle that i had to jump was after that but again like I say, this was, in my mind, at this time I'm, that I am now, I look back and say, thank God I didn't oh, turn yeah. on that signal. Yeah. Thank God they got me at the time, you know, because I'm, I'm a different person now. And I can't imagine, I mean, I don't know what would have played out after that. If you had made a successful execution of the pipe bomb and killed people, then we yeah. wouldn't be talking today because you'd be in there. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, with if there had been multiple deaths, if your intent had played out as you had wanted it to initially, it, it could have been ugly. So you, you get busted. I mean, what, what was the reaction for the police officer? They look in this backpack and they see a pipe bomb. Did they shut down the mall? Like they didn't know what this was possibly could be. Because nowadays, if, if they stop somebody with a pipe bomb, I couldn't imagine that the whole entire like square mile would be, you know, shut down, like schools checked. And because it's just such a different time period now in 2022. The reality of it is they opened the backpack and had some clothes and a bunch of other shit in there like any couch surfer would have. <laughs> they didn't immediately notice the pipe bomb sitting in the bottom. But really? I had, but I had the gun still on my waistband when they... You know, when they tackled me to the ground, the first order of business was the, you know, they found the gun and, uh, I, I don't remember why, but I, I vividly remember a couple of the officers complimenting the piece, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, things you but, remember. Uh, I mean, I can remember a lot of things from that day, but I remember that conversation. I remember being honestly petrified uh, because I knew, I mean, in my mind, my life was over at that point. You know, of course. I, I really, really thought it was over, not even considering that, you know, the ramifications of what I had initially planned, you know, what those would have been. I mean, it just goes to show you how cohesive the mind of a drug addict is at that time. But you know, again, I also had been beaten an inch of my life as well. And so I was in a lot of bad shape, incredibly bad shape at the time. Right. Yeah, of course. We uh, were taken immediately to the Sandy police station. And it wasn't until we got there that they found the pipe bomb. And that's when they got mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so, Were they mad at you or were they mad at that they did a shitty search? And you had yeah, a fucking so they, bomb. My perception is they're mad at me. You know, they're screaming at me and they're yelling at me like I should have told them that they had it. And I'm like, I don't know why you're mad at me. You guys are the ones that fucking brought it in here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that you're absolutely Chris. I got to give credit to you because they fucked up. They really yeah. did, and I'm sure that they're pissed because the supervisor is going to say, "Why didn't you do a thorough search? Why would you not search the bag before you brought it in here? How dangerous, you dumb fucks!" So at that point, they did evacuate like the courthouse, <laughs> everything. So <laughs> I called that one. That is epic. <laughs> so, which, which is almost more justice for me <laughs> like at this point i mean it is it's hilarious you know from a from a convict standpoint you didn't get the yeah, revenge it, one, but at least you've got you ruined the cops day <laughs> they did they brought bomb squad in uh to dispose of it and which is actually a huge blessing as well because they were in such a hurry to dispose of it that you know come time for my federal hearing they just had pictures of something and you know no real evidence and my i had a, a pretty aggressive public defender it was wanting to prove himself, and he was looking to fight every little piece that they had. It didn't keep me out, obviously. Uh, I had my my experience there, but after 90 days, I was headed right back to UNFI. Wow. So, okay, is it new charges, or is it a parole violation? It's that a parole violation, but okay. I'm being charged federally at this point because I'm a firearm by a restricted person at that point. Oh, but because uh, a lot of times they use the violation to submit the paperwork and then they can do the 72-hour hold, get you back in. So that's what they did, which was kind of good, bad. I mean, they did that. They brought me in for the parole violation. And, and this is where I spent most of my time between Draper and Gunnison. 
which is probably if you had ever run into me there, it would have been in Draper at that point in time. What year is that? I told you I'm terrible with time. So, so this was 2001. No, 2000 was when I went right back in. So I was only out three months, right back in in 2000. By 2000, I was in Ochre 5 or Olympus. I think Olympus was a little later because I went there once they had made it the mental health facility. It used to be the women's, but I was a CHS, a correctional habilitative specialist, and had to go through all this mental health training once they made it like the forensic unit for the mentally ill offenders. I had helped open up Olympus as the mental health unit. That's why I never uh, knew you, I think. That's why. Remind me, was Ochre 4 or was Ochre 5 STG at that time? Ochre 5 was the old farm. It was that big dorm. Okay. Your more restricted units were the were the one, 1 and 2, 3 and 4. But I can't remember okay. if STG was 1 and 2 or 3 and 4. I think but it that's... was 3 and 4 because when I came back from Gunnison, I, so the first thing he did was put me in Baker Block, but I was there for about an hour and uh, they put me in with somebody they absolutely should not. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the gentleman, but he, oh, killed, yes. he killed an officer. He and I were not friends. He actually PC'd up. You know, you know what that is, but for some of your oh, listeners, they, they might yeah. not. He yeah. actually was in Gunnison, and he went into protective custody for not paying his bills. They put me in his cell. It lasted about 45 minutes. I was off to the STG unit. That was my, my experience there, but he was, I have to tell you, as hard as that guy thought he was, there were a lot of motherfuckers that thought he was a straight-up bitch in there. Not a real popular guy. I think he got a lot of his claim to fame because of uh, a segment, I Family. think it was National Geographic, came in and did a lot of uh, interviews and had interviewed him. Actually, I think that he got released when they were doing a video there at the, the Utah State Prison. I don't remember interacting with him. I, I know I, I've seen him. So, and I don't know if it was Curtis or if it was his uncle. So his uncle was a was big in in an Aryan gang, and so he was very very well known. And then Curtis was real young, and he came into Gunnison, and he was wanting to be, you know, kind of ride on his uncle's coattails, and he was not that guy. And actually, I think he went on to during a transport killing a, a CO actually, and so I, I think he's. Probably still in there. For people that are not familiar with the history of the state prison, um, Steve Anderson was an older transport officer. Very nice guy. Very well liked Incredibly by. Incredibly nice guy. Uh, very well liked by all the inmates, from what I understand, Chris. Is that pretty much he was just very soft spoken, very nice man. He did a transport up to the university and he had to get, I think, an MRI. So he had to take off the metal restraints the handcuffs and probably uh, leg shackles. And in the process of changing them out to a plastic or some type of restraint that was allowed in the machine that uh, overpowered him, got his gun away from him and, and shot him multiple times, I think in the head and the chest. And then yeah. went on the run and got captured at Arby's. Big all over the news, of course. And um, terrible tragedy. Uh, he, he really was. He's a man that they made a difference in, in the prison system, uh, not just probably to the people who worked with him, but they, you know, the inmates, too. I mean, a little bit of respect and care mm -hmm. and kindness goes a long way. And he always treated people with utmost respect. 
treated him not like you were uh, not like you were another MA. He just always had this way about him that made you feel like he was just one of your pals, regardless of who he were. I'll tell you a story that took place is I know that when they had the execution of Ronnie Lee Gardner and the director spoke after the execution was completed. And you can tell me from your perspective, if you think this is completely inappropriate. And again, this is hearsay. I was not there. I was not part of the execution team. What I had heard, and I heard it from multiple sources, is that the director had made a comment in reference to the fact that the stress that night, having worked the execution, was very hard on staff and it was hard. And he made a similarity to when Steve Anderson was killed, making the comparison. And I know that a lot of people in the room were extremely shocked that we're talking about the execution of Steve Anderson up at the U to working the execution of Ronnie Lee Gardner. A lot of people felt like that was really inappropriate i would agree and uh, to be honest with you like it gives me uh, it gives me chills to thinking about it and I, I would agree that stress is at an all-time high not just for people working in it but for everybody there yeah back to your story i'm sorry let me ask you one real quick question there was an incident there was an inmate Vander Stoppen, I think he was a white supremacist, and there was a big incident there in Wasatch where they had like run into different blocks with multiple people getting assaulted. Do you know this incident that I'm talking about? I didn't work it, I wasn't there, but I know it was a big, big to do. Vander Stoppen was like this little white supremacist, and you know, I gotta tell you, he was a really cute looking guy. <laughs> Take it yeah. from a gay man. We always notice the the guy that maybe is a bad guy, and of course there's that thing where people always say that certain people are attracted to the bad guy. That was never me, but I always thought that Lance Vanderstoppen was such a cute little guy. It's so sad that he ended up being this mean little racist dude. <laughs> but I know I know that uh, that I, I think he ended up either killing himself or getting killed but fuck he i mean he could have been like a bellamy model he could have worked for some of the best porn companies he had to be a bottom because he was just too cute anyways i digress where were we oh, with your story Chris? Well, I, as far as that incident i wasn't anywhere near or had much knowledge but i'm actually familiar with him and i'd agree i mean he's a handsome man <laughs> so um, I mean, you can't argue with it, right? Right. No, I mean, seriously, you call a spade a spade or a bottom a bottom, whatever your preference <laughs> is. But <laughs> So back to your story. So I, I hit Gunnison and I, I said I mentioned I meant, went from Baker Block to STG and I spent the rest of my time in the Ulkers in the gang unit because by then they'd kind of known who I was hanging around with, but we were mostly locked down. They weren't really housing me with, you know, some of the other Asian gangs. I, I think they were just assuming that I was involved in all kinds of shit uh, and just put me in there because by then I had been palling around with some of the, some real nasty people there of all varieties. I'm a bit of a social butterfly, if you will. You have to be because they try to find out, of course, who aligns with who. You know, yeah. you've got Serenios, Nortenios, Ogden Trace. They try to find out who aligns with who, and they have officers that are trained as best as possible so that they don't have an incident where rivalries get put in the same section or the same cell, God forbid. There was one particular guy 
and he god i know you know this guy um god he's a red-haired guy and he's got like tattoos for the white supreme thing and he was housed with a black guy and he was in a section of uina five marvin was the name of the black guy what marvin was the was the black guy and i know you you know this other dude oh i know who you're talking about i cannot remember the life of me the last name we won't mention yeah no that's okay i'm bad i shouldn't have said that earlier (laughs) Uh, the only reason i i mentioned the one guy is because you know it's a compliment because he was really cute and i would have loved to fuck him and he's not alive anymore so that's the only reason i can say his name but with these other two they were housed together in a section of you want a five quentin of course was well known in that community with the white thing and he's housed with a black guy they had wanted to get an extra pm box and i was doing rounds and they said hey uh quentin had said to me he's like hey dwolf um i got pictures of my wife today and she's wearing practically nothing you know for a box lunch i'll show them to you and i looked at him i said your wife <laughs> Fuck, you got any <laughs> your dad and and i really said that you know and of course these guys don't know the real truth about me but they just looked at me and they were so shocked and they just started laughing so hard. They're like, what the fuck is wrong with that cop? And they laughed so hard. And it was a great distraction. That way I don't have to tell them no and get in some type of confrontation that I'm not going to give them a pee box. But we all really laughed for like the next, you know, 30 minutes. But they're like, what well, the fuck did he just perfect say? perfect deflection. I would have laughed my ass off too. And you would have ever gained my respect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when we talk about respect in prison, I got to tell you a story because... We had talked the other day about, you know, certain staff that know how to play the game, like Steven Anderson, who it's about respect. And then you have other guys, and we had talked about a few people. One, I will just say, hey, so-and-so, I'd like to piss in your butt. And they would always scream <laughs> that as he would walk down the corridor of UNA5. There was this one time where I was doing a cell search in Baker section, and I was a new guy. And this is right around the time period that we've been talking about. We had had all the guys out of like one half of Baker section and you want a five in the shower and we go in and we start searching the cell and we're tossing the cell. And and then we let all the guys out of the shower and tell them to go back into their cells and then close the doors. These two guys went into their cell and they were really mad at me for tossing their cell. They just went off and they're like, you know, fuck you, you dick sucker. You like to drink cum. Fuck you, motherfucker. And they wouldn't rack in. And we keep telling them, Jeff and the other officer was Jeff. And I'm telling them, rack in, rack in now, rack in. Fuck you, motherfucker. Fuck you, bitch. And all this other stuff. Finally, I just said, look, man, you're just mad because your mom's a fucking cunt. You could hear a pin drop, Chris, like every inmate on both sides of the tier. You can see them looking out the bars and they can't believe what I just said. And even the officer that was with me, he looks at me, he goes, hey, man, you can't say that. They (laughs) racked in and the two guys that were cussing at me, they didn't know what to say. They didn't have a comeback. They're like, and so they went into their cell and we racked them all in and like the whole building was so quiet. I think like the next day I went in there and I said, Hey, look, I got to tell you, I, I'm sorry. I should have not said that about your mom. I didn't pull them out. I told him I fucked up. I'm sorry. In front of the, all the other inmates, because I had to do that. I, I fucked up. I crossed the line, but he let it go. He's like, no big deal. Don't worry about it. Whatever. 
And I will tell you, Chris, for like the next 10 years, I would see that guy every couple of years and we'd make eye contact and he'd start laughing. <laughs> he'd just start laughing. And we had this just kind of like, I don't want to say camaraderie, but a connection. It was just one of those things where we both in the heat of the moment, he definitely had respect for me that I came back and said, look, I, I fucked up. That was wrong of me. And he had a lot of respect for me that I would do that. And that it was, that was it was, it was man, anything. I mean, even today, I would say that probably one of the biggest like skills that anybody can learn is the ability to be vulnerable in front of somebody. Sure. You know, I mean, I did not have that at that time. You know what I mean? I was vulnerable, but I was not trying to show anybody at all. <laughs> right, but, right. It was cool though because I just it was really fun to run into him, you know, randomly throughout all the years. And both of us started laughing every time we saw each other. It was really cool, actually. Great memory. But again, sorry, we digress. Uh back oh, to your right. story. So I spent a lot of time going through the Oakers fighting my federal case still. So I had my obviously my parole violation there was serving time there, but all the while I'd been transporting on a regular basis to the federal courthouse. When it came down that they were trying to nail me for like 30 years of the, the very, very beginning of it. It became very, very clear that when I was being released to the federal system, no matter what happened, I was going to long be done with my state time. And as you remember, I mean, we've constantly fought overcrowding in the state prison in Utah. Oh, so yeah. They were just happy to be rid of me. And so they, the second they were able to remand me into federal custody, I mean, they ended mine. You know, they were like, ah, we're releasing you into the federal system. We... We don't want nothing to do with you anymore. The problem no longer becomes the state prison. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I'm sure yeah. that they were very happy about that. They were. Uh, I actually, at the time, I'm not allowed, I was very happy as well because, uh, I mean, the rumors were, I mean, the food is a whole hell of a lot better in the federal system than it is in the state system, so I was a little bit excited. I don't want to do a spoiler <laughs> because this is probably going to be a, a two-episode conversation. I don't want us to forget either. Is the food better in the federal system? I'll say yes. I'll, I'll tell you, I've never had more meals made out of beans in my life. I didn't even know you could make bean pie until I went there. And so, there, I mean, <laughs> it, I had no idea it was a thing. So, and it's a dessert, apparently. So, wow. Yeah, uh, it is better for sure. I mean, you don't give you a whole hell of a lot of time to eat. Definitely is better than the. LOF meat that you get over there at the Utah State Prison, which we lovingly refer to left on the freeway, is what the LOF is for. <laughs> so. Well, I'll, I'll talk about that later, but I know that I was in that kitchen, you know, many, many times after hours. There were some pretty good things in that kitchen. And I will say that I've eaten a few meals made for staff in a jail in another state there's good and there's bad but whenever you're preparing food for such a huge population utah definitely had some good meals sometime what did you think about thanksgiving and christmas thanksgiving and christmas you live for it there i mean those were yeah. the best meals that you ever got uh, who couldn't get excited about turkey on thanksgiving real turkey turkey Not off spice. the bone yeah <laughs> And you got, what, two little pies in one style, right? Like a pumpkin pie and apple pie or something? Yep. Or, and then the other one was full of stuffing, turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy. It was the best meal of the year. It was really good. And then sometimes they would give the ice cream cups. 
the little yep. vanilla ice cream cups. Yeah, just so. the little peel off lid ones or yep. you know, the little cardboard top we pull up. Yep. Yeah, that was Absolutely. that was really good. A lot of times you'll see at correctional facilities the food for the staff and the food for the inmate population is different. But in Utah, yeah. it's like if you want a tray, if you're a staff, you know, you either get a tray or you don't. It's up to you. So a lot of other facilities have like an ODR officers dining room instead and Mm-hmm. Uh, they had something like that in the in the federal system. I I went on to work in the kitchen in the federal system, and so I spent quite a bit of time, you know, serving officers in the ODR and taking care of stuff there. So I actually uh, spent a lot of after hours, evenings in that kitchen doing tattoo work on officers <laughs> when we were supposed wow. to be waxing the floors. Or, or, you know, do it. Before we get too much into like federal prison life. Yeah. Is there any other things that you wanted to talk about with your experience at the Utah State Prison? My experience at the Utah State Prison mostly was in either, like I said, the STG, which is the only route for a couple hours a day. Uh, and that's you know, the Oakers? And, yep, in the Oakers. And mm-hmm. even when I was in Gunnison, uh, I mean, I was on what do they call it, the 47-hour lockdown at first, where you're only out for an hour every other day. Wow. The reality was I saw most of my time was the inside of the cell. And, and I, I was furious when they were going to pull me out of the max area. Because by the time I had got to, for your listeners, they have kind of a classification system there too. Even if you're in max, you don't necessarily get a certain amount of phone calls a day, you know, or phone calls a week. You have to earn those privileges. You have to earn the right to pay to have a TV in your room, you know, things like that. And so... I had, you know, worked my way up to having all these rights and so many visits a month. And then they took me out of max and they put me in a lower security area and they wanted to start me all over at the bottom level again. And I was like, you mean I can only have like a phone call a week again? Fuck that. Take me back to max, dude. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. You know, I want my shit back. I'd rather yeah. sit in cell with all of my stuff than, you know, be here and be stripped of everything. So I did my damnedest to work my way back to max very, very quickly. And <laughs> um, got my wish. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a few questions and then we're probably going to have to do a second part. I'm going to ask you just some questions. Did you have to take any programming classes? Did the board require before you leave to take any programs or did you voluntarily take any programs while you were at the state prison? I did. So I volunteered for college courses, which is why I went to Gunnison. You know, so as soon as okay. I was able to, I got shipped out there for college stuff. However, like most addicts, I was found with a needle in my cell and sent right back to Draper not very long after that. <laughs> wow. What was the worst thing? This is probably a tough question, and you can pass if you want to. But um, what is the worst thing that you saw in your time at the state prison in Utah? And, you know, there's been a lot of just brutal battles and stuff but i i mean the truth is the worst thing you see is you witness the worst of humanity i mean people that are uh, that are in there even as convicts you generate camaraderie there too there's just a total lack of trust and just seeing people turn on each other that's that's honestly one of the the worst things like in my mind like truthfully uh or most impactful things there's probably only five or six really really brutal beatings that i I remember seeing, but they were all pretty impactful. So just the dark side of human nature. Yeah. And that's the hard part is you become hardened. You know, you become untrusting. And it's very, very difficult to really, truly become close to somebody again. Wow. The best thing that you saw 
in your time inside the Utah State Prison? And this is going to be strange to say this, but the polar opposite. I've actually seen some of the best of people in there, too. And, and I'm not talking inmates. I'm talking CLs, inmates. A lot of people, when they think of, of prisoners in general, I mean, they're criminals. They deserve to be there. You got the worst, the worst in prison. But everybody there is somebody's son, or somebody's brother, sister, or, you know, a cousin. And, and there's a lot of a lot of other lives being impacted there. And there are also a lot of kindnesses shown from some of the most unexpected places as well. So I, I'd have to say that's probably one of the most beautiful things as well. And I, like I, it was actually some of the friendships that I gained in, in the system that truthfully have kept me like focused on being a positive impact in my life instead of, you know, just being another statistic again. Sure. When you watch the popular media, television, movies, and you see portrayals of prison, what do you think? What are your thoughts? I laugh a lot because there's a lot of misconceptions, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I agree. There's always, there's always the misconceptions that people are always getting raped and that's just not the case. I mean, there are plenty of willing participants in prison that anybody wow. who wants to participate is, I mean, they're going to, it's just not something that, that happens as often as you would think. Inmates don't like it either when someone is victimized like that too. I witnessed something happen to a young kid there. I witnessed the entire pod of people, people that hated each other, come to this kid's aid and act some sort of retribution that they could on the guy that did it to him. Wow. With you bringing that up, would you say that sexual assault runs rampant at the state prison? I always get asked that question. I get that. Here's what I tell them is I say, I know that it was really bad for a while but I've heard it's gone way down since I've retired. Well, I, they're, they're, <laughs> I will say that. That's a joke, Chris. That is <laughs> no, a joke. <laughs> it took me something to realize that that's what you were saying, but, but well, I, I, said, I wouldn't say it was rampant, truthfully. I, I mean, there was some. Some of the toughest dudes that, you, that were hard as nails, that were acting like they were man's man, uh, you know, the proverbial and and they were homophobic and all this other stuff is, is what they were acting out on the outside, but they were all participating in stuff, uh, you know, willingly and enjoyably on the inside. Well, you just described me. <laughs> I mean, for the longest time, you know, I've got this perception of being a hard ass and here's this six foot five prison guard. And well, it doesn't make any sense why he's not married and doesn't have 10 kids. It's, I mean, this just doesn't add up. And, you know, he's the first one to throw out fag jokes. But, you know, and then finally in 2002, I came clean. I think that you're absolutely dead on. <laughs> so let me uh, ask you this. I'm going to got two more questions and then we'll wrap up today's episode. The first question is, what would you tell someone that has been sentenced to go to prison in Utah? Oh, man, that's a tough one. I mean, you, Utah is a weird prison. Uh, like I said, I went to the feds too, and I don't want to give too much away for the next episode, but I mean, you have to be as hard as you possibly can uh, on the outside. That is, a, that is Utah State Prison is a place where vulnerability is not welcome from the inmate side uh, okay. at all. I had a little different experience than most because uh, as a white guy and, and you in a two at one point, I mean, it was sack up or pack up, and I was not a participant of that because I came from ethnic gangs you know what i mean and as a white guy that was not smiled upon 
at all. So, I mean, I fought quite a bit there as a, as a knucklehead. And the best thing that you can possibly do is make the most of it. You know, get an education while you're there. I mean, you've got to be there, Good. right? If you're going to be there, get your degree. I mean, how much cooler is it to throw that you have a college degree on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever instead of put school of hard knocks, you know? <laughs> I, 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 it just, you know, that, University of Life or something, you know, you can't. It's just not cool. <laughs> That's good advice. That's good advice, Chris. Thank you for that. Let me ask you this. What would you tell a brand new corrections officer starting at the Utah State Prison? This is the difficult one because when it comes to the CO side, I, obviously, I, I don't know what it's like to be a CO. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of treatment, mm-hmm. but just like anything, you get what you put into it, right? Like this, it can be a positive experience. Like, I think you have an opportunity to make an impact in, in people's lives who don't want to be there. Yeah, I mean, there are some that are lifetime criminals, but the reality of it is, is a large percentage of them, I mean, no, and I would argue that probably all of them is all of them aren't going out saying, can't wait to get back here. You know what I mean? It's just not something that people think about. I mean, there were a few people that as they left, you're like, oh, I'll see you next week, dude. It is a you know, revolving it, door, unfortunately, for some people. It's sad. Honestly, it's try to make an impact in a positive way. I mean, you never know who, who you can touch as part of their lives, you know, emotionally, or, or if you can give them some sort of motivation to get out of there. And I know that that's not always as easy, you know, from the correctional officer side, because there's this culture of opposition between inmates and COs, but just like Steve, you know, there, there are ways around it, you know, and, and inmates will rally behind a CO just as much as they will, you know, another convict as well. If it's some of that's treated them with respect and they've, they know that they're, they're not treated like an animal. That's really the biggest thing. In the time that I was there, I rarely had somebody that I seriously did not like. I know that there was days that were trying. UNA5 definitely had its challenges. Olympus was very rewarding, Chris, because those guys, a lot of them, when they're not medicated, they're very psychotic and they just do terrible things or they try to self-medicate through drugs. That was seriously the most rewarding, at times the most challenging. I really relish the time that I worked at the state prison, especially the mental health unit, because working with those guys, some of them are just seriously the nicest people, but they've been dealt a different set of cards than I was in life. And it's really sad to help them through the process or at least the functioning of day to day. And, you know, I'd laugh with them. I joke with them. There's times where they would get mad and they would do horrible things or act out or, you know, had issues with hygiene or become psychotic or cheek their meds and traded it for commissary and all the, the things that go on in prison. But very rewarding time for me. Well, I think you probably, I mean, it's an opportunity to learn a lot. You know, not just, I think, like emotionally, there's a lot of emotional growth there. And a lot of people can become intelligent, but I think there's a level of an emotional intelligence that you are forced to learn mm-hmm. in a situation like that because you have to always be evaluating every single person, like whether they're behind you, in front of you, to the left of you, to the right of you. And you have to literally pick people apart psychologically, like throughout your day, 24 um, yep. seven, because it's not a safe space. 
But as we had talked the other day, some of my biggest problems were administration. Definitely not the guys that I had to manage. Those guys were easy to deal with. Just you make them laugh and they were just fantastic. Administrators, yeah. <laughs> those are some of the biggest cunts I've ever met in my life. Yeah, because so. they, they don't want you to come in and just do the job. You know, they want you to come in and hassle folks. I don't know why. I don't, I don't get it, but well, this is going to, uh, this is going to be the end of this episode. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. I'm looking forward to part two to hear about the federal side of your journey. So that's going to wrap up this episode, talking with Chris about his time getting into the criminal justice system and his time at the state prison. Next time, we're going to talk about the federal system. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on today. No, thank you. It's a pleasure chatting with you again, and I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's awesome. You've definitely opened my eyes and let me see the other side of the bars. This has been episode 24, and I'm going to close this session the same way I close it every time, and that is to be good. And if you can't be good, be good at it. And if you're sitting in prison, Chris, you're not good at it. Have a good night, everybody. (laughs) 